Hello everyone and welcome to Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talk about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm editor Peter White and we've got with us our solar analyst Andres Fontenar. Hello. Our hydrogen analyst Bogdan Avaruta. Hello. Media analyst Connor Watts. Hello. And our product manager Simon Thompson is also here to ask a few questions at the end. Hi. All discussion on these podcasts is built up around the stories we published usually the day before on our free weekly uh, uh, issue, which you can read at our website www.rethinkresearch.biz and then just click on energy and read those stories for free. And today we want to discuss India's attempt to build its energy economy around hydrogen. That'll be interesting. The European Commission's proposed electricity market reforms all all hinge around contracts for difference. And a story from Andres comparing uh, the Chinese spend and the US spend on transmission, um, which are vastly different. Um, And then then Simon will quiz us on monitoring the short items we published on the energy transition. So let's first look at India's, what India's, India's Ministry of New and renewable technology is planning. Yes, yeah, so um, India came out, started this year with having released a, a grand plan mission to basically base their entire uh, future economic strategy on hydrogen. Obviously, very big numbers involved. Uh, they want to scale up production of green hydrogen to about 10 uh, million metric tons um, past 2030. They currently use about half of that. They will benefit from about $2.4 billion in, um, in funding from the uh, Indian cabinet. Yeah, excuse uh, me if, if I'm, initially... I'm, I'm, I'm kind of being a bit aggressive here, but it just seems to me that's not very much. I mean, $2.4 billion, um, to change the direction of Indian uh, energy doesn't seem... No, more... but a few months ago, the... Uh, uh, Prime Minister, um, is it Modi, his name? Mm-hmm. Narendra Modi. Um, yeah. yeah, he came out with, I guess, what could be called the uh, the bigger uh, plan regarding India's economy. And that will benefit, again, also based around hydrogen, that would benefit from $240 billion. So this $2.4 billion is just 1% of, of that um, kind of allocation. Um, and this mission is only basically zooming in on First, decarbonizing its its industrial activities and creating um, indigenous supply chains and and also demand. So it is a part of that much bigger plan worth uh, two hundred forty billion. It's so funny, I'm, I'm assuming that first, sounds to be more sensible. The first story of this type was probably one about Australia, and it's probably three years ago. Mm. And and since then, we've heard Kazakhstan and and Mauritania and all sorts of places, but uh, gradually, yeah, old man as well. More and more hubs in America, and obviously Europe got on mm. the bandwagon very early. This is a very late show. I mean, I do understand that it, India isn't an industrialized society as such; it's in the process of industrializing. But most of its um, uh, GDP are, it, it, I, I, I don't know. I think it comes from agricultural. So it, it doesn't have vast natural resources. I mean, it's a good idea, but why wasn't this done three years ago? I mean, I think we kind of see this 
opinion about hydrogen starting to shift throughout the world and it took time i think there's still people out there who dismiss hydrogen as a whole um so i think it just naturally took took some time i don't think that too late to the party i think they're just about maybe you know got in before the door closed on the first wagon so to say obviously the first wagon in this case being the most profitable Okay, so they're currently producing 5 million tonnes of grey hydrogen, which means they just let the CO2 slip yeah. off into the air and do it from natural yeah. gas. So, so they've got an industry to replace. So, so that's the first thing, mm. is that they can replace that with green, and that gives them a, a flying start. So they've got, um, um, they've got a captive industry there to be getting along with. Um, so mm. that's, that's a start. Uh, the, so it is an interesting story. And again, it's from the old video days when, when I covered video. Um, uh, Netflix introduced some, some, some uh, 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 video that was created in, in America, and it cost about $100 million to make this video. They produced something that was even better from India. It cost a million dollars to produce. And then they distributed it throughout the rest of uh, the civilized world and got a huge increase in subscriptions. Uh, for only an investment of a million dollars. And it strikes me that that's true of energy as well, that because salaries are low, because land costs are low, because um, it's not uh, an advanced industrial society, um, we, a, lot, a little bit of money tr- goes a long way. And, uh, and uh, perhaps we're being unfair and that actually this is a good first step for India and it could end up um, uh, chasing the hydrogen bandwagon and catching up with it and... Uh, not leading, but at least not being as far behind as it is perhaps on solar compared to China or some other industrial aspects. Yeah, I mean, it, it does have some catching up to do in terms of um, building up wind and solar capacities, but they do have the resources, and at least they recognize that and make use of it, unlike, let's say, you know, Middle Eastern countries. Um, but I mean, this, this whole discussion is um, largely along the lines of the main conclusions we draw from our upcoming APE report, Annual Primary Energy, which has some interesting conclusions about countries with such um, rich renewable resources. I'm not sure how much we would like to give away from that. but now We don't want to say too much about it, apart from to say that uh, APE is Annual Primary Electricity. We believe all pr- that primary energy uh, all tends over the next 10 years to go to electricity. And in that report, we measure the world's electricity generation output and uh, separate it by fuel and type over a 30-year forecast. So that's coming out in the next couple of weeks. And anybody who uh, wants to find it, go to rethinkresearch.biz, uh, click on energy, and then click on forecasts and data. Uh, and they will, uh, and they'll find um that report, uh, yeah. So, so in that one, one aspect is is the amount of hydrogen that uh, we expect to be generated, um, and how much electricity that will take up. Okay. Well, we can, um, you know, we can wax lyrical about India, but I, I mean, I think I think it, it's enough to point out that it's trying, it's starting, um, it, it's got some existing industry, and um, we can go on from there. Um, Move on to the next story. Um, Connor, I think you covered um, the electricity market reforms uh, in the EU, and they don't seem uh, very, uh, seem to have changed a lot. Largely they haven't, because it's still in a 
consultation phase and it seems to be just trending towards long-term contracts in the implementation and the widespread implementation of contracts for difference. So a big part of the State of the Union address last September was around unity and having the European states effectively unionize and bargain collectively in energy markets. And so there's an attempt being made here to unify the approach being taken to this sort of thing, as opposed to having what we've had in the past has amounted to infighting amongst well, I, I mean, I don't think the individual states. I mean, it's fair to call it inviting, but I mean, between the different countries, yeah. I mean, everyone competing. So, so, so the the problem with having wholesale auctions for energy is that when you suddenly have one of the staples of um, of your energy generation, in this case, uh, 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 gas turbines, suddenly double, quadruple in price, uh, and if it's necessary to complete a wholesale auction. Um, then that, that price, the price of your electricity, peaks dramatically. Um, and if you could do without it, and, and someone, and what people are talking about trying to do is is um, stop the price of renewables and dare I say it, nuclear if you're in France or or um, or hydro, also enjoying that very very high price uh, on a wholesale auction, the striking price. And the, the one way of doing that is that, that when you fund renewables, when you give them a, a guaranteed profitability by by subsidising them, you do it with, through a contracts for difference. And the contract for difference uh, hinges on a particular agreed price. And if the energy sells below that price, the government subsidises it up to that price. And if it sells above that price, and that's the instance we're thinking about here, then the government gets the money above that price and can recirculate it into the energy economy. Um, you know, so so that effectively, uh, if natural gas peaks in price, it doesn't affect all the others. The problem with this is most of the contracts that are in operation have been going for a long time, and suddenly uh, all these renewable companies, all of uh, any other form of energy, is getting. A massive uh, profit um, spike at the moment, which across European countries, some countries are um, taxing taxing that, uh, that those those sudden profits. So the idea is to to um, unhinge it from the uh, the natural gas price, but without really changing the um, the auction, the reverse auction, which under which all European um, electricity prices are set. Um, it's it, th this idea has been rolling around for about six months, um, and people are, are starting to understand that this will probably work. Can I ask what the TTF exchange is? You you, you mentioned volatile pricing it's, on the it's TTF the Dutch, exchange. It's the Dutch, um, gas exchange um, where, where gas price is set um, for the ah, region. Okay. So there are about six global gas markets. Uh, and and uh, the the one for Europe is is TTF and uh, uh, and, it, and it's based on the fact that uh, gas is not the same price in all parts of the world because the proximity to gas resource um, is uh, is different. So if you're in uh, some, in Japan, for instance, 
um, you're not very close to any gas sources or not sufficient. So people have got to put um, LNG on ships and get it to you. Um, and so you you kind of tend to see higher prices in off, off that exchange. Europe, of course, is seeing higher prices because of the Russian war um, on, on, on the TTF exchange. And it doesn't compare with how, you know, in, in America, the price has only probably doubled. Um, so, so it's no good having one global exchange for, for gas. Um, you need these regional um, exchanges. Uh, most, okay. most people in the gas market fully understand that. <laughs> okay. Um, Moving back to uh, contracts for difference. Part of this consultation is asking about how far the commission is going to be able to go in terms of imposing contracts for difference. There seems to be an acceptance that contracts for difference are going to be the way forward for any new plants. And as you mentioned, when it comes to nuclear and hydropower and renewable energy investments, so as to prevent that from meeting the marginal price of natural gas during periods of volatility. How far this goes, and the radical option in this, is the ability for member states to impose new contracts that implement contracts for difference upon existing plants. Yeah, but that's no better. Which would do more. Than AMLO in Mexico renegotiating, you know, all of their uh, subsidies. Uh, immediately, all investment pulled out of Mexico. I mean, you, you can't um, retrospectively uh, take an agreement which is set for 15 or 20 years and say, you know what, we're not going to pay you what we said we would on that. Uh, we're going to do something else. Um, and a lot of 20-year-old uh, uh, renewables installations are only finally seeing profits now. And uh, and, and they've been subsidised through a, a long period. So that, that's that's not going to be very well received. And I doubt if it's going to happen. But here's the, here's the, the rub. Whatever all the academics do is say, well, look, let's offer these renewables and, and hydro and nuclear. Let's offer them new contracts, which are extended. After all, we want to extend nuclear. So a lot of nuclear is coming to a head. It, it needs to repass its, uh, its, its safety certificates. It needs to uh, spend a lot of money. If, if we're going to give them some money, Let's make them assign long-term future contracts and they'll get more reward over time, but it has to be a contract for difference. So let's let's invite them to, to give in their old contract and sign a new one a little early if we give them some help. So it's going to be a quid pro quo. Um, it's going to be a kind of one-by-one -one negotiation with this big stick in the background that we might just retrospectively um, just set this in motion. That I don't think anyone actually believes they will. I think. Um, I, think I don't think it will. Yeah, as you say, I don't think it'll be heavily implemented. The kind of threat of the big stick in the background is often enough in that in terms of negotiating. And all they got to do is leave it on the there. table. All they got to do is say, say, we'll look at this again in, in two years. Let's talk, but we could do this. Yeah, yeah. We could, yeah exactly. Yeah. I, I think this is inevitable. I think this will happen. Well, what, what, but you won't see gas, new gas um, facilities being asked to sign contracts for difference because that would guarantee them profits. And also, it, it kind of it never works with fuel because fuel varies in price, and you can't have a contract that's set in concrete for twenty-five years with a fuel that's going up and down in price. It just doesn't make any sense. So contracts for difference were only invented because renewables um, have a um, don't have 
any continuing fuel costs. That's, you know, and neither does hydro and well, to a lesser extent, I mean, nuclear has long-term fuel costs, but, but um, it does have some. But um, yeah, so that, that's, that's, this is going to happen. Uh, it's going to change um, how many people are dragged along with it and what it actually does for the, um, for the price of electricity across Europe. You can't really predict, especially now that gas prices are back in their box um, and are very similar to uh, before the war on the TTF. Um, but the trouble with that is um, most European markets have uh, a regulator that prevents price increases being excessive. Um, all of those um, regulations have been broken by the, uh, the Russian gas um, price hike. And as a result, um, those prices never come down. Regulators can't bring prices down, but they can stop them from going up. And that's how, uh, so, so Europe still has to get used to the idea that its prices, its electricity prices, its gas, or the, or the electricity from gas will still have an effect on the wholesale markets for some years to come. Um, it's, it's just one of those things. It's nothing that I think we can do about it. Okay, let's... We've got one more story we wanted to talk about. Andres, I was very interested in this transmission lines in Arizona piece, and I couldn't quite work out how, uh, what triggered um, the news. But in the end, it was a it was a comparison between what America is doing with its um, transmission industry and what China's doing. Yeah, and there is an interesting comparison to be made. But before I get into it, I just want to say I got one number a little bit wrong in the piece. I wrote 500 billion as the number that China invested its grid last year. Now it is 500 billion, but it's 500 billion renminbi. So like I wrote in our, uh, in our issue last week, it's more like $80 billion um, that, that China invested in its grid last year. Now for the US, I can't even find a, um, a, a, a single unitary figure like that. With, with China, you just find the state grid figure and you add the China Southern Power Grid figure if you feel like it. Uh, the US, I'm not really sure what's going on, but it seems like something like 20 billion uh, in new investment, another 20 billion in maintenance. So considering the US is a much smaller uh, by population and it isn't a rapidly developing um, country that has factories to serve half the planet, that's actually not so bad uh, in, in a direct numerical comparison with, with China. Um, but the Vice President Kamala Harris uh, last week um, or the week before was visiting the, inaugural, the, the beginning of construction of a $400, $400 million uh, transmission line. I can't for the life of me imagine Hu Chunhua or Li Keqiang uh, attending the groundbreaking ceremony of uh, just a $400 million transmission line. You know? <laughs> Um, so yeah, one of those every week in China. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, it is difficult. It's difficult for everybody in the energy industry, which is why some of them hate listening or talking about China and some of them love it. Um, the scale, the scale that there are more than four times as many people in China as there are in America. Um, it is a, a society which is in the process of moving up the industrial chain. And therefore, it's not fully industrialized, but it's accelerating towards that point. It wants to make uh, high value add products across all of its society. And normally they refer, they, they require a lot more electricity. Um, it, 
the amount of electricity that countries have has to be grown with um, with their GDP. Uh, America's GDP is certainly growing, but nothing like at the rate that China has been growing. If you go back 10 years and you look at the, t the absolute numbers of China's um, uh, GDP, and then you look at the absolute numbers of America, uh, China's getting closer and closer, but in big steps. And you can only do this by spending, keeping your electricity in step with it. If, if industry wants to grow, and it can't get the electricity, it can't move. It, so it's one of the building blocks of, uh, of industrial societies that it's well understood. Um, and America is fully industrialized. I mean, it, yes, it, it occasionally needs some more transmission, but mostly it's got all it needs. You know, so it, these are two very different societies. Yes. Um, but you're right. The, That's um, all the, true. The, the, but, but, but the next step is we need to embrace renewables and that that's an issue yeah yeah because like i say in this piece you look at the best place for solar in the us it's a band across the southern border from california to eastern texas where it's 50 percent better than it is in iowa or pennsylvania um you know just 50 percent more power uh then for wind uh, and wind is the one for which i put a, an art an image in the article there's the famous wind column or wind corridor from Texas reaching north. So Texas is the intersection of those two um, high resource things. So if you're doing what the Chinese are doing, which is building as a commonplace thing, 800 kilovolt ultra high voltage current lines, well, to, to put it as crudely as possible, what you probably do is you'd run one from California through to Texas, through to Florida, and then up the Eastern coast. And you'd also have another one running north from Texas. Or, or multiple ones in each case. So you'd have a T-shape with Texas as the most connected node um, because it's got the wind and it's got the solar coming into it. Um, now, the, the reality, the hilarious reality is that Texas is the complete opposite. It's a segregated grid. It's got its own special grid with poor connections to the rest of the country, uh, so much so that it, it gets its own uh, unique um, blackouts uh, when when there's like like with the cold last year or was it the year before um and the rest of the country couldn't even help it much and it so it's, it's a sort of so the us is somehow spending a reasonable amount of money um maybe everything's cheaper in china so the comparisons are a little bit misleading in dollar terms there um but it, it's it's more just a sort of choice to build on, on the state level or perhaps on the Western in interconnection level or the MISO level and to build all these 230 kilovolt lines and 345 kilovolts and at, at most yeah, typically only 500 kilovolts. And, and there is the there is one um, ultra, well, high voltage line that's, uh, I had it up earlier, it's about 700 kilovolts, the, the Pacific DC intertie and that just runs within California. So it's doing a good job bringing hydropower to the south of the state, but it's just one state. Whereas the- Yeah, the, oh, well, when we say just one state, we, we kind of go, yeah, but there are 39 million people living in California. It's just one state that bordering on being a country. Um, yeah. So <laughs> actually it does, it does it, run it into does... Oregon and, and the other one. So it's not bad, but again, that's just the Western inter interconnection. When we look at the bipartisan infrastructure, um, uh, um, act and and then we look at the amount of energy spending is in there you get sort of electricity infrastructure resilience fund of 11 billion dollars and you go well that's just to make the existing transmission lines 
not fall over in a wind. I mean, that's, and so you got, there is spending there uh, and Transmillan Mission Facilitation Program for a couple of billion dollars. But what, what their society is not set up to do is pay for transmission um, because all the separate grids um, manage that. So Queso in California, um, ERCOT in Texas, um, and, and New York ISO and uh, all the others are segregated and those grids being segregated um, we come back to the 2018 seams study um, which um, which mr donald trump thought it was very important that he um, pulled this study and didn't let anybody see it uh, and almost deleted it from the records because all it showed was how much uh, cheaper electricity would be if you connected all of all of the grids Roughly in the way you say, from periods of from areas of highest generation and areas of highest usage, um, left and right across the the uh, the divide, and then up the middle. And if you if you built uh, if if you just simply spent something like twenty or thirty billion dollars building new transmission um, of the right quality, you could relieve all of those pressures on those individual grids. Um, and of course, that was toxic because all it, it it ended up doing was making it cheaper for renewables to connect. And Mr. Trump's government didn't like that. Um, and effectively, it's got it's got um, you know Mr. Biden's government is uh, trying to make those connections and trying to fund them. Um, I, I, I think we'll we'll see that we get there in the end, um, but. But you're right. At the moment, they have to be funded by the distribution companies or by the ISOs. So, so a lot of uh, come. So, for instance, in you know Southern California, Edison and you know runs its own grid, and so do other parts of the grid that are really just distribution. Uh, they really are just utilities, and then it's it's not funded centrally by a federal government. Just from an aesthetic point of view, are these cables? Are they overhead or are they? in the ground or how, you how does it work you can't, you can't put a new transmission uh capability in the ground i mean you, you, you okay. have you, you you put them up in the air as high as you can uh, and you mm -hmm. keep them away from trouble and you put them on these great big steel girders and you you try and build the girders in such a way that if you need to lay more you just drop another cable on um mm, okay it, there's a lot of research going now into getting more transmission through the existing cables uh, and getting um, and doing that by things like putting storage at each end and running them at full capacity all the time, whether you need it or not, uh, so that you're moving uh, electricity to different different points, which is why America's uh, so um, crazy about uh, energy storage at the moment, because it's it can't imagine anything more profitable. It's like printing money. You know, it's, oh, I don't need to spend billions on this one cable. I can just take the existing cable. And when it's not being used at full capacity, I can just drop in, fill up these storage silos um, and then use it from, use that locally. So the, the Americans answer to the question is get business to pay for it, get business to pay for it by um, heavily investment in storage. China's answer to the question is, well, we're not broken up into states. The federal government can fund this from uh, uh, Beijing all the way across up to Inner Mongolia. 
Um, if we want to build a, a new transmission line, we can. Um, guess what? Permitting. You can, you, can you imagine the permitting process in America when a farmer says, I don't want that across my land. Uh, and, and everybody says, no, I don't want it here. And getting a new transmission line permitted take 10 years and, and probably fail. And you'll need 20 or 30 different alternative routes and only one will get through in the end. It's, um, it's, it's, it's just very different societies. Permission is not always granted, whereas in China, it's pushed through. But it does serve, the article is a good article, it does serve to, to show the, the difference uh, in attitude between the two societies. And there's, and, and there's, 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 a, um, there's a link to, um, you know, China isn't just building the lines, it's building the renewables. And it's like, they're, they're quite literally building 100 gigawatt uh, batches of wind and solar complexes out in the deserts uh, every few years. They've got four of those batches. And the, the high voltage thing has been going on for years. It sort of got underway back in 2014, which I guess maybe not coincidentally coincide, uh, is at the same sort of time as its first big solar developments. Like there was one um, line that went for, what was it, three over 3,000 kilometers, uh, 1,100 kilovolts, so double the voltage of, um, of the, the typical high voltage one in the US, and um, with a capacity of 12 gigawatts. And it's like, they can do it, it can be done, but I guess the I guess this is a. I guess this is a, a big win for local, medium-sized installations and and storage because you try, you know, Biden passed the IRA, Biden passed the infrastructure bill, um, he's he did reasonably well in the elections, although I mean losing Congress, but only barely, um, but he's still not able to it's just okay, change the paradigm and change uh, uh, and, and cut I mean, through all the difference between have, having central federalized single. Um, government, you, you, you know, you, you end up, you, you don't have to ask anyone's permission to do anything. You just say, this is the plan, on we go. And everyone tries to please you and make it happen. Yeah, it's great, but where would we rather live? Would we rather live in uh, a Chinese society where things get done, but sometimes um, you have to face um, unpalatable consequences, or would we, we, you know, or do we want to go down the route of capitalism? Well, we're firmly in the camp of capitalism. We're trying to make renewables as a business um, profitable and attractive. Uh, you know, not we're not we're not we're we're amazed at China because it doesn't have to deal with capitalism and all those private and different vested interests. But um, it may be difficult, but it's it's uh, it's it's a better society to live in. Anyway, uh, we can argue that uh, if we were a political program, we're not. We're not. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it is amazing to see what the Chinese can do. Yes, but I think it's amazing to, to see what um, federal and state and uh, business can compromise on in, in, and come up with a way of making societies work around energy um, without. Um, perhaps automatically going for the big gun of, of a massive spend. It's um, it's a more thoughtful process. Even if Seam's study was um, uh, was implemented um, unchanged, it would cost nothing like what it costs in China, um, because a, a lot of the the transmission is already there. It's a matter of just connecting particular points um, across. The it's, line. A, it's a thought actually. So Trump suppressed Seam's. Why hasn't it had a new lease of life? Uh, sort of famously under under Biden. 
and yeah. will it? It, it, yeah, it has okay good we've about it we, we basically yeah he's um um there was some funding granted to um looking into it um uh, under the department of energy um in the bipartisan um agreement i believe um and i think that um that may at some subsequent stage need to be funded but i think that will get funded so i i think this is um I think it's more about fixing the grid and making it more resilient to um, not just to hurricanes, but also to suddenly a weather change. And if we all need to get electricity to um, Texas because it's frozen, um, then then we should. Uh, but we, we, we should be able to do it. I mean, Texas has a 100 um, a volt connection. Also, I mean, it has a, a small connection to one neighboring state and that's all. So um, that 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 would have, if it could have borrowed from a neighbouring state during that February freeze out, it, um, it 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 would have been okay, and 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 that's the same for most states that that they don't experience that they are so large that they don't experience the same weather, um, and it's certainly not two states over. So they they can help each other out and make money out of it, and that, and that it should be facilitated. I think the government will be getting around to that. Okay, Simon, um, have you got us anywhere um, that you want to look at? Yeah, it's a, a fascinating um, section uh, at the end, the, the world of renewables this week. And the, the, the thing that struck me is it's about um, battery gigafactories. How do you build a successful gigafactory? Uh, British Volt failed. But there are other um, companies that seem to be popping up in the UK market uh, um, uh, who who may have more success. Um, one I of them think, is Fortescue. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a very simple thing. It's uh, uh, start by being credible and having mm. previous projects that have worked. Uh, go get some customers and say, well, if I build mm -hmm. this, would you would you like would you like to contribute to it? And would you uh, like to um, uh, benefit from it and uh, what kind of terms can we agree ahead of time you know I'm actually going to do it because I'm you know I've done this kind of stuff before and um, we've got the, the wherewithal and if we don't we can buy it um, and having the credibility to sit down at a table and and ha hack out a deal um, whereas if you just sit around and uh, I mean I, I think the, the funniest thing is uh, in this week's um, uh, uh, worth notings is Sun Cable, where where it's okay. an improbable idea, but two billionaires, one of them is Andrew Forrest from from uh, uh -huh. um, are arguing over just how to do it, um, and they uh -huh. want to take control of it in order to get it done their way. I mean, I think that's um, and and no one is suggesting that either one of them's wrong, because they've uh -huh. they've made big gambles in the past and they've won. So uh, do you I think, think it's that, 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 that you also need, I mean, it's great about the money, but you also need technical and manufacturing know-how to be able to implement these big projects. You certainly need to be uh, resilient against um, hurdles. You need to be able to look at a problem and say, well, I don't know the solution to that problem. I need to hire someone who does. And regardless of what they cost you, you should be able to... Um, even do pure R&D if you have to. 
So for, again, come back to Sun Cable, that um, uh, we're talking about transmission expenditure. They've got a whole transmission problem there. You know, uh, underwater cable 3,000 kilometers long, that's a hell of a transmission problem. Mm. Uh, so they get people who can solve it and they, and they get yeah. quotes from everybody uh, who's going to supply it and they they test whether they are, they've ever done that before and they um and, and they they spend the money preparing the ground properly and again that's 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 why people like um bridge vault fail is that they don't have that feeling of authenticity when you come to uh, the government money it's usually the other way around um Oh, can we lend you some money? Because we'd like some of the glory. Uh, not, and clearly you're going to succeed. Not, what do you mean you'd like some money? Who are you? you know, that, mm. that's, that seems to be the difference. I don't want to slag off um, British Vault. Um, I'm much more better at slagging off um, my own UK country because um, we're just very poor at funding projects like that. Um, mm. And somewhere between investors not understanding it and the proposition not being um, resilient enough will be the, will lie the truth. I, I don't think so. I think a gigafactory, you know, two years ago, so, somebody was on the phone to us saying, well, can you help us raise this money for a gigafactory? Um, and we put it out to a few investors and just said, oh, this, you know, and this is something I did privately. And one of the investors said to me, um, yeah, I get I get a proposition like this on my desk once a week. <laughs> and that was two years ago. Uh, and how much? You know, what's the valuation? And when do the when are the numbers in? And when when do I get the real details? And because they failed to respond to that fast enough and professionally enough, he just said, "No, they're cowboys," and just wrote them off. Um, because he he had other people to compare it with, people that had done the job right. And, and who was saying, yeah, you know, I've got all that detail. Yeah, yeah, sign this NDA and, and you're in. So it's about how to do business cred credibly. Are there any others that uh, that you... Uh... I mean, Fortescue, yes. by the way, just, just to say, Fortescue's not bailing out British Vault. Um, Fortescue's building its own um, factory uh, that's about a tenth the size of the British Vault. Um, deal uh, to start with and it's it's not asking anybody for money it's just getting on doing it another thing that caught my eye is about digital rights management company uh, intertrust uh, making a deal with uh, a korean uh, company called eip grid and it's for um secured well di digital um di well digital rights but for electricity for grids um and that, that was interesting because if there are going to be millions of users, how do you make this data secure? No, it's not, it's, I don't think it's per user. I think, so I spoke to Talal Shamoon at Intertrust, the CEO there, um, about six months ago. And okay. he, and I said, well, you know, digital rights management. And I've known Talal for um, 20 years. Um, they, they, they basically um, went bust when um, Microsoft kind of um, came in and uh, and looked at their digital rights system and then just copied it. Uh, and so they Intertrust sued them. And I'm trying hard to remember the amount of money, but it was something like $440 billion. 
a, mi a million dollars, million, sorry, not billion, that they got in court. Uh, and the only reason they survived long enough to get to court was that Sony and Philips acquired the business. Um, but but Talal was running it at the time, and he's still running it. Um, and and now we're looking at what did they actually do? They, it, it's all about um, roots of trust, uh, inside chips, and uh, and knowing who's allowed to read what, and making sure that uh, if the information that you're providing uh, is um, is for this customer, then they can see it. And if it's for this other uh, uh, company, they they can see a summary of what's happening to the total system, but they can't see the detail. So that we we protect everybody's data rights. Now, originally that was applied that was applied to um, uh, encrypting video to let people who've paid a subscription get it, and not and not anyone else. Um, and it, it was all. A, Anyway, so it is basically about encryption, but how else can you use it? Well, obviously, you can use it for virtual power plants that, you know, only the people that are, um, only you should only see your own electricity usage and, and the amount of profit you make uh, and somebody else um, who you've signed a deal with who runs the, the virtual power plant should be able to see um, all of the customers and how much money they've got from selling that energy on somewhere else. And, and so immediately when you start looking at the problem, if you didn't protect it in some way, you would have um, some kind of carnage um, around not just um, people getting information they shouldn't have, but the element of control and who's controlling the process. So uh, yes, I, I believe there's, a, there's space in this market for that kind of uh, of solution and when we first talked to Intertrust they were talking about it in charge points and how many people contributed to a charge point network and who was allowed to see which summary data so that was the first instance this is now VPPs um, yes it's going to add value to VPPs it's going to make it easier to um, to make profit from them um, and they can't just leak data and people shouldn't be able to just log into them. It should be a simple thing. I'm allowed to see this data, let me in. I'm not allowed, oh, I can't get in. Um, it, it's from, from how they do that, it's not a subject we want to go into on this podcast, but the fact that they can do it and that they have a reputation for it is, um, yeah, it's, it's nice to know. Um, and, um, and and so they will have a place in this market, as well as five or six other companies are, are likely to come out of that uh, encryption marketplace and and secure um, energy systems. Will there be more about this in our forthcoming DER report? Well, I, I hope not. Um, <laughs> the, the whole thing about the DER report is is the amount of, of distributed energy resource and. How, where that's growing and how rapidly that's going to grow. And I think the headlines for that are, it, this changes everything. Now, now obviously, there, there is detail in things like um, security, but, but I think that won't be the uh, detail we're after this time around. We're, we'll be after, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, we've been thinking about DR for three, three and a half years and saying, why doesn't this happen? And suddenly, with the under the guise of energy security, suddenly DER is going to take off, and it's going to take off in a way 
that I don't think any utilities in the world um, are clear on. And I think that it's going to be one of the big changing forces in energy going forward. So uh, that's what that report's going to be about. Um, we, can, we can deal with um, the technical detail of individual security elements in news stories. So if you want to see this podcast uh, and the, the more information that we do on um, on uh, our issue, go to rethinkresearch.biz. Um, on the top menu, click energy, and you'll be straight into the weekly analysis. Um, there's a, a bar there which says forecast and data. That's the paid service. That's where all our forecasts are. That's where the digital uh, distributed energy resources report will be appearing in about a month. Um, we've got two or three reports to come out before then. There, uh, if you need data to drive your energy business, come to Rethink Energy at rethinkresearch.biz. Thank you. And that's the end of this week's podcast.